Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 15. We're going to pick up again in the book of Romans. We've been away from the book of Romans for some few weeks as we talked about church government. We talked about our purpose, why we are here as a church. We talked about our mission, all those various things that we sought to develop. We talked about teams. We talked about leadership within the church. We talked about ministry and various functions. And we'll be talking more about those things over the weeks and months to come as we seek to build for the glory of God an effective group of people to propagate the message of the gospel here in our community and around the world. And um, we just are so thankful that the Lord has brought you to this church to be a part of it, to use your gifts for God's glory here in our midst. As we study the book of Romans, we're jumping back into the letter towards the end of the letter. We had just finished talking about Christian liberty and issues with Christian liberty. If you'll remember the progression of the book of Romans, really that central thought that begins the book is in Romans chapter 1. It's been several years since we were there. So let's think about it again. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, chronologically, but also to all the nations, for in it the very righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, from faith from start to finish, from start to finish of the story. The Old Testament saints were saved by what? Faith, not by works. The last saint that comes into the family of God before the Lord's return That person will be saved by what? Faith. It is from start to finish. It is a message of salvation by grace through faith. From start to finish in your life. It's by faith. Not by works. So we see that message. All through the book of Romans, he has delineated that message. He has explained to us, first of all, our need for a Savior. We looked at that in the beginning of the book when he says, you know, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And then he goes right into that thought, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. Men who suppress the truth because we love unrighteousness. And he says, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And then he presents to us not only the depth of our need, he's, he, he, he presents to us the greatness of our Savior, our Redeemer who came. And so he is just and he is the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Talks about our sanctification in the begin in, in in that middle section of the book. Chapter eight was a glorious chapter as we talked about the perseverance of the saints. We talked about eternal security, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ. We studied the sovereignty of God. We studied the responsibility of men. We then transitioned into a section where he talked about the ramifications of the gospel in our present life and how God desires us. He said, 
I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you, that you individually, that each of you, present yourselves to God a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. It is your spiritual service of worship. He then said, and do not be conformed, don't be pressed into the world's mold, but be transformed by having your mind renewed so you can prove in your everyday life what that good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. And then we looked at all the things that are a part of God's will. We talked about human government. Chapter 13. Reminding us we have a responsibility in the days in which we live in this country. So go and vote in the primary. Right? Go and vote in the primary. Don't neglect that. Talked about Christian liberty. Now we get to this section and beginning in this paragraph that we begin to read today, that we begin to study, the Apostle Paul is now bringing his letter to a close and there's going to be some very rich truths in this section for us. Paul is going to explain to us his personal plans. And as we look at his personal plans, we get a real sense, we get a real look into the heart of the Apostle Paul, and we begin to see the kinds of things that were his priority in ministry and life. And hopefully these then help us to set priorities and plans in our lives. And so Paul deals with his personal plans. I want you to notice with me the paragraph. He begins in this section in verse 14. There's an intensive, I myself. We don't often say that in the English language. We might say I or me, but we don't often say I myself. That is an intensive, and he's really trying to stress his involvement in this, the way that he feels, and he's really drawing that intensive focus to us of what he is thinking. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, and then he does another intensive, that you yourselves are full of goodness, you are filled with all knowledge, and you are able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly in this letter by way of reminder. I have done so because of the grace that was given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Then notice this phrase. He's using a metaphor. He's using a word picture to help us understand what he sees himself doing as he ministers the gospel he says, I am doing so in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then. Notice this. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me 
to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of the signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, that so, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, lest I would build on another person's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now notice with me, at the beginning of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul also laid out some of his personal plans. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul said to the Christians in Rome, he says, I want very much to see you. And when I do, I want to impart to you a spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that I often plan to come to you. But up until now, I was prevented from doing so. And I wanted to come to you, I planned to come to you, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just like I have among the rest of the Gentiles. So here at the beginning of the book, the Apostle Paul has laid out some of his personal plans. And then he said, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the good news to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So Paul has laid out some of his personal plans at the beginning of the letter. Then he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And from that point, he goes into the gospel and he explains the gospel message in the greatest detail anywhere in the New Testament. And then we get to where we are currently and he returns to the same theme. And you'll have noticed as we read through that paragraph, he is beginning to lay out some of his plans, some of the things that he's already done, and some of the things that he wants to do. And we will see through the rest of this chapter that continuing theme of the plans of the Apostle Paul. I think the best way to understand this when we think about Paul's plans, there are some things that I want to think about, about not only how Paul planned, but how that should affect the way we plan. Number one, the first thing I would say is this. Paul made plans. It is not unspiritual to make a plan. It is not against faith to make a plan. Paul made plans. Paul said, this is what I intend to do. This is my next journey. This is my next step in that journey. So Paul made plans. He didn't just live willy-nilly. He didn't just do the next thing that came his way. Paul had plans that he laid down. And I would suggest to you that we as Christian people should make plans. We say, well, the Lord might come back tomorrow. Yes, he may. And maybe if he comes back tomorrow and you haven't made plans, maybe the Lord will rebuke you because you made no plans. Right? Because the Lord wants us to make plans. Martin Luther was once asked, what would you do today if you knew the Lord were coming tomorrow? He said, I would plant an apple tree. 
Why? Because he understood we have responsibilities today. And we should take responsibility, and we should do what God puts in front of us. We should make plans. So I would say to you, the first thing to think about when we think about this section of the book, and we think about what Paul was doing, Paul made plans. Paul had goals. You and I should live that way. But I want you to also think about this. Paul's plans were always subject to the will of God. Just like it says in the book of James. And you see this in Paul's life. His plans were subject to what God was doing and what God developed. So as James says, we should say, if the Lord will, I will live and do this or that. So Paul's plans were always subject to the will of God. Now, whether or not you give glory to God by subjecting your plans to the will of God, the will of God will be done regardless. Right? If it's God's will for that to fail your business venture, it's going to fail. Okay? But I would suggest to you, if you go into life with the mindset, Lord, my life is yours. I want to do your will. The Lord will bless you for that kind of mindset and that kind of faith. That is the way God wants us to live. Always looking to his will. Now, the last thing you see then is Paul, Paul's plans were always adaptable to changes in God's providential direction. In this letter, Paul's going to tell them, I'm on my way to see you. I'm going to come see you, and I'm going to give you a spiritual gift. You know what? Paul does get to them, but he doesn't get to them the way he was thinking he would get to them. How did Paul get to Rome? in the belly of a ship as a prisoner. It was not the way Paul was planning. Paul was planning to go to Rome in the midst of a journey on his way to Spain. In the interim, Paul has gone to Jerusalem to present the offering of the Gentiles to the church of Jerusalem to meet their needs. There's suffering, there's a famine. While he is there, the Apostle Paul is thrown in prison. Paul was not planning to go to prison. That was not his goal. That was not on his bucket list at that time in his life. But God put him in prison, and from that prison, Paul does end up in Rome. But it's not the way he expects here. So Paul's plans are adaptable to changes in God's providential direction. And that should be true of us. As God directs us by his circumstances, as he leads us in life, our will and our plans should adapt to what God is clearly doing. So this is the way Paul planned. This is what he did. Now I want you to notice with me in this paragraph, we are going to use the personal pronouns I as kind of a structure, as a skeleton to work through this paragraph. So you will notice with me the first thing that Paul says at the beginning of the paragraph, he says, I myself, I am satisfied. What is he satisfied of? We'll talk about that in a minute. But Paul finds himself satisfied. I am satisfied. The next thing he says is, I have written. He says, I have written boldly, and I have done so to remind you of something. 
Paul is not telling these people, I'm giving you something new. He's saying, I am reminding you of something you already know. And so he is reminding them, I have written to you to remind you. He then says, I have reason to be proud. That's in verse 17. I have reason to be proud. And then he says, I will not venture. I will not venture to speak of anything except what God has accomplished through me in my work for the Lord. He says, I will not venture to talk about anything else except for that. And then he says, I make it my ambition. He says, I don't want to build another man's foundation. I don't want to preach where Christ has already been named. I am going to make it my ambition to do a certain thing. So he says, I make it my ambition. And he says, I don't want to build on another man's foundation. So that kind of gives us a structure for this paragraph as we think about it today. We're going to look at this one and then back at that one. I am satisfied. I want to suggest to you that this one here, I have reason to be proud, in verse 17, is central to the whole paragraph. When you think about what he says in this entire paragraph, he's talking about the church in Rome. He's talking about what he has written to them. He is talking about confidence. He is talking about his personal ambitions. And he says, I have reason to be proud. Well, I thought pride was a bad thing. Well, I'd suggest to you it is, right? Pride itself is a bad thing. Pride is a sin. When you look in the scripture, it is like the fundamental sin from which all other sins spring. Is pride. And yet there is a sense in the New Testament in which the Apostle Paul uses this word to speak of that sense of self-satisfaction, a sense of accomplishment that wells up in our heart when we look at things that have been done. And I want to just draw your attention to this in verse 17. Um, By the way, this then, these things form the basic outline of the paragraph. You know, what satisfied Paul? Why had Paul written these things? What was Paul proud of? But what I want us to think about is Paul's pride. And I want you to notice in verse 17, he mentions the in and the for. And that in and the for is all important and what makes that legitimate or not. Look at what he says in verse 17. The in. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Paul's pride is not sinful for two reasons. Number one, it is in Christ, and number two, it is for God. Because Paul's work was for God, and it was done in Christ, Paul's pride, his sense of accomplishment, brings glory to God instead of to himself. Anytime we bring glory to ourself over God, or instead of God, it is sinful pride, it is idolatry, and it is damnable. But when we feel accomplishment in Christ, and we accomplish things for God, 
there is a sense in which we should feel. God wants us to feel. God wants us to feel a sense of accomplishment. And I'm not just talking about teaching a Sunday school, having a small group. I'm talking about all of life. All of life is to be done to the glory of God, is it not? You don't just come here for the glory of God, although I hope you come here for the glory of God. I hope you come here to worship God. But I hope that your entire life is lived in Christ Jesus for God. So that whatever you do from start to finish in your week, you do it in Christ for God. If you are building houses, you are doing it as a Christian in Christ. And you are doing it not just for the money, not just to accrue a big crew and have all the glory that comes from being the biggest, best builder in Star Valley. You do it for God. Whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And so he says, I have reason to be proud Because what I am doing, I am doing as a Christian. I am doing it in Christ Jesus, and I am doing it for God. And so no matter what our vocation is, we rightly feel a sense of accomplishment. We rightly feel a sense of accomplishment. We rightly feel satisfaction when we look at the work of our hands and we realize we have done it in Christ and we have done it for God. Otherwise, if it is not in Christ and for God, it is just idolatry. That's all it is. So the book of Ecclesiastes tells us whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it well. Do your work with increasing efficiency and effectiveness. And do it with joy in Christ and for God. And as we do so, it is in that context that we are truly letting our light shine before men, that they see our good works and they glorify our Father who is in heaven. We think about our good works. I don't know if you noticed, but in the bulletin, uh, the, the part of the Westminster Confession of Faith that's in there is talking about our good works. And that we are created in Christ Jesus under good works. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, I want you to notice what they say. This is just rich. I was thinking of it just in my own personal study of this as I was laying it out in the bulletin. It says, notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Now, are your good works accepted by God if you are thinking, I'm going to do good works to be accepted by God, so I'm bribing God, I'm going to be saved by my good works. Does God accept that? Is that good to God? No, it stinks to God. It's filthy rags. But he says here, we see this, our good works are accepted in, in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable, or unreprovable in God's sight. What does he mean there? 
No good work that you do, no good that work that I do is completely free from the taint of sin. Sometimes it's your motives. Sometimes it's the way you do it. You've got a good, sincere heart. I mean, bless your heart when you do it, it just flops. Right? In this life, no good work that we do is wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight in the sense that it is perfect. But in Christ, He is looking upon them in His Son. He is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although it is accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. That's the way we live. We're weak, we're imperfect, we try, we fail. And yet in Christ, as we present our works unto God, He accepts them, as we see in this text. It is an offering of the Gentiles, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, I am satisfied. I want us just to think about this whole thing. In Isaiah 53, it says of Jesus, prophetically speaking about Him dying on the cross, how He would be broken for us, all we like sheep have gone astray, but the righteous God has laid on Him, the servant of God, the iniquity of us all. And then it says in Isaiah 53, this one, this suffering servant, will look at the work of His hands and He will be satisfied. And God, Christ, sitting on his throne today at the right hand of the Father, looks at you and I, the work of his hands, redeemed by his blood. He says it was worth it. I'm satisfied. Paul is satisfied. He says, I am satisfied. Now let's look at this. I myself am satisfied about you. I think this relates to what we just talked about, about Paul's welling up sense of accomplishment. I have reason to be proud of my work in Christ. And he says, I myself am satisfied about you, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. Paul is talking to ordinary Christians in the church of Rome. People that are just like you and people that are just like me. Ordinary people. He says, I am satisfied about you that you are full of goodness. That you are filled with knowledge and you are able to instruct each other. You don't need some high-dollar therapist to be hired by the church to come fix every problem in the church. What does Paul say? You are able to help each other deal with your problems. I am satisfied about this. Now, notice this word, I am satisfied. This word doesn't speak of the satisfaction and contentment. Amy made an apple cake yesterday. It was good. 
And I sat there and ate it, and when I had two pieces, I felt a little more than satisfied. I felt very content. A cup of coffee and a piece of cake. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that sense of satisfaction. What he's talking about is a sense of satisfaction that comes from being convinced of something. I am persuaded of something. It's like, okay, now I am satisfied. And so what he's talking about is a confident conviction about a reality or a course of action. You want to buy a car. And you go to the used car lot. And you look it over. You look at its defects. Ah, Is this a good one or is it a lemon? Is it going to drive or is it going to die as soon as I get it off the lot? And you don't know because you don't know that vehicle. And there's always that kind of sense in our heart when you're buying a new used vehicle. You're always wondering, is this going to be a real mistake? Or is this going to be something that I really am thankful for. And so you do your due diligence and you look at it and you go around and you examine it. You maybe have a friend come and look at it with you. He looks at the tires. He looks at the brakes. You look at the motor. You look at the oil. You you know, you just go through that vehicle and then you finally say, okay, I'll buy it. I'm convinced. I am satisfied. I've been satisfied. I'm persuaded. That's the kind of word that this is. Paul says, I am persuaded, I am satisfied of something. Now, what is Paul satisfied of? What is Paul persuaded of? He is persuaded that these people in this church are full of goodness because they are full of knowledge and because they are full of goodness and knowledge, they are able to instruct each other. He says, I am persuaded of that. Now, let's think about this word for a minute. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, it says this, we are the circumcision. Now, Paul is there in the context talking about the Jews who think they are the true circumcision. He says, no, the church, we are the true circumcision because we have been circumcised in the spirit, not just in the flesh. We are the circumcisions, circumcision, the ones who serve by the spirit of God. We boast in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's the word for pride that Paul uses in verse 17, we are proud of Christ Jesus and we do not put any confidence in our flesh. That's the same word we see here. Paul has no confidence in human flesh. Paul even says, although I once had confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh... I have more. And so Paul is not here saying in Romans 15, I am confident of y'all. You're just a great group of people, although you are a great group of people. I'm just so confident in y'all. No, Paul's confidence is not in y'all. Paul says this, I am confident. I am positive. That's my translation. I am positive. I am persuaded of this. The one who started to do good work in you will finish it. My confidence is not in flesh. 
my confidence is not ultimately in you. My confidence is in God. He started the work. He will finish it. And so Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, that is why I suffer these things. I'm not ashamed because I know the one that I have believed in and I am persuaded. I am confident. I am satisfied. He is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day the day of his return. Paul's confidence, when we read this here, and Paul says, I am satisfied about you, Paul is not saying, I just know you're a bunch of good people and you'll just do the right thing. Paul is saying, I am confident in God. I am confident that the very same God who changed my life has changed your life, and the very same God who lives in me and is empowering me is living in you and has empowered you, and because he lives in you and he has empowered you, then you are able. That is important to think about, that the ordinary Christian has the superhuman power of the supernatural one true God living within him and her that gives to you individually the ability to instruct each other. It's not like yourself. Now think of the progression here. What is Paul persuaded of? He is persuaded of these things. Number one, because they are filled with knowledge. Remember 2 Peter 3.18? He says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you think about the progression in the language of this verse, the first thing that happens in these people's lives is they are filled with knowledge. Being filled with knowledge, they are full of goodness. I'll just suggest to you, I guess I won't suggest to you, I'll just tell you, on the authority of Scripture, before you are filled with knowledge of the Son of God, you are not full of goodness. You are full of self and sin. You may not always live it that way, and you may be kind of a good person in some ways, the way people think of it, but you are not full of the goodness of God. But when we are filled with the knowledge of God, that then fills us up with the goodness of God. So the goodness doesn't come first, it is the knowledge that comes. And so he says, you have been filled with knowledge. Because you are filled with knowledge, you are filled with goodness. And because you are filled with goodness, that gives you an ability to instruct one another. Wow, where did that come from? How do I get rid of that? Somebody else, there it goes. Because you are filled with knowledge, that knowledge of Jesus Christ will fill your cup with goodness. And from that reservoir of knowledge and goodness, you have the ability to instruct one another. That's the progression. That is the way he lays this out. So the progression is you have a renewed mind, you have a transformed life, and then you're able to teach. That's the progression we see here. The ability to instruct comes from knowledge of the Word of God. As that renews your mind, God will transform the way you live. And as God transforms the way you live, you will be able to instruct others to help them to deal with the same problems 
God dealt with in you. That's the progression we see in the text. Able to instruct, the word can mean to admonish, to warn, to instruct. When we think about instruction, it is the scripture's basic role to to instruct us. In 1 Corinthians 10 11, it tells us that the things that are written are written for our instruction. So God gave us this book to fill us with knowledge to instruct us. So the scripture's basic role is to instruct us. We also see that this word instruct is the basic responsibility of fathers and mothers. So in Ephesians chapter 6, 4, he says, you parents bring up your children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul talks about that, how in his spiritual fatherhood of people, he instructs them as a father does a son. So this is a responsibility of parents, both physical and spiritual. We also see it as the work of elders in the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, chapter 14 Second Thessalonians, I don't got time to go to all these passages, but you see that this work of instruction is a work of elders in the church that they are to instruct and to teach and to admonish and to warn. And every believer has a role. Every believer has a role. God takes you into the word of God, I pray every day, to learn his will and to learn his ways in order to transform your life not just so that you can sit on your duff and enjoy God, although I hope you enjoy God. He does so so that you will take that knowledge and you will instruct others who are in this place. Young people, You're trying to build a marriage to the glory of God. I'm not saying that you never should go see a marriage counselor, whatever. But I'll tell you this, if you want to have a good marriage, look around, find some gray hairs who have been married for 30 to 50 years and buy that couple a meal and say, tell me how to do it. That's where you learn. Because marriage is not just about the knowledge, it's a learned skill. Raising kids. You know how to raise kids? Don't just buy the next book. Read the Bible and talk to some people who have done it successfully. There are people in this place that are able to instruct you. When you have a struggle, don't lay out your hard-earned money just to run to a therapist. Find a believer who has struggled with a similar sin, who has found God's grace to overcome it, and sit down with them and ask them some questions. You'll find more help in that conversation, I submit to you, than you will most times going to the professional. Because you are able, by the grace of God, to instruct each other. And I am persuaded of that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you.
that you have brought together a group of people who have been filled with knowledge. I thank you for the knowledge that you give us of your will and your ways and your word. I thank you, Lord, that that transforms our life and it fills us up with goodness. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that we could teach one another, we could instruct, we could admonish, we could warn. Lord, I thank you for the work of Christ Jesus and that in Christ we can be proud. We are proud of you, Lord Jesus, for what you did for us. Lord, may we put you on open display. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we stand our closing song together?
we have a hope, Lord, that you have conquered the grave. And Lord, we stand together united as a church. Lord, I pray for your hedge of protection about this church, for the unity, for the love that we have for one another. Lord, that you would build that love. And Lord, that we would encourage one another. Lord, that you would help us to come around side of each other and Lord, to be your hands and feet as we speak truth into each other's lives, as we encourage one another, as you continue to build us up as one body, together united. Lord, that we would serve you well. That we would go from this place as we go now. Lord, that we would shine our light for you, Lord, and that lives would be changed because they see you living through us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us and for your word, which was read today, studied. May we use it now in Jesus' name.